If you got a Bible, and I hope you do, go to Acts chapter 9. Because like I said, if you're new here at New Heights Church, we like to go through books of the Bible. I love teaching the Bible, and I love teaching the Bible here at New Heights Church. And I love the people who allow me to teach them the Bible. So I love you, and I'm grateful to teach you the Bible each week. And we've been building a culture here of people who love Love God's word. And I couldn't be more excited about our church and where we're headed, right? God is doing some incredible things. My wife keeps telling me, you can't be a selfish pastor. You're getting all these incredible emails of God doing these incredible things in the lives of your people. And you need to share it. Those testimonies are not just for you. So we are going to work on that. We're going to get these video testimonies out. And we're going to start practicing a culture of uh, sharing testimonies. Because we're encouraged when we hear of what God is doing in other people's lives, aren't we? And I'm here today to tell you, God is doing some incredible things in the lives of our people. So we are going to get those to you. But uh, today, uh, we're going to talk about, well, the fact, in fact, the title of our sermon is called uh, God Can Save Anybody. God Can Save Anybody. So we're going to talk about conversion. And what you need to know is every conversion is a miracle of God by God's grace. You cannot become a Christian apart from conversion. And when I say conversion, I'm talking about being born again. The theological term for that, and I think it's important for you to know and understand, is regeneration. When a person is born again, they are regenerated. The word regenerate means to be given new life. A believer is a person that has trusted Jesus Christ and God by his spirit and has regenerated them or given them new life. That's what we're going to talk about today. They've been born into God's family by the Holy Spirit. In fact, Jesus said in John 3, 3, Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God, right? The only way to get to heaven, and I'll say it again, the only way, the only way, the only way to get into heaven is by being born again or regenerated or given the new life of God's spirit in our hearts. You can only find that through Jesus Christ. That's it. So today we're going to be looking at one of the most famous conversions in all of church history, the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. And if you're taking notes, and I encourage you to do that, there are three places in the New Testament, the book of Acts specifically, where this testimony is recorded. This is the historic event that we're looking at today in chapter Acts, or in chapter 9 in Acts. And then in Acts 22 and Acts 26, we're going to find the story told once again, but this time by the Apostle Paul himself recounting his testimony as he preached in the courts of many great kings. So in Acts 9, Acts 22, and Acts 26, you find the story of Saul's conversion. And by the way, Saul is converted. He becomes Paul the Apostle. We're going to talk about his name a little bit in today's sermon. But in case you're wondering uh, who that is, we're talking about Paul. When I say Saul today, we're talking about the Apostle Paul. Paul, the great apostle who penned most of the epistles in our New Testament, And it's all recorded for us so that we can know God by his grace uh, saves sinners. So there's hope for us, amen? Paul's testimony of conversion stands as an incredible example of how God can save and transform a life. Now, before we dig into the passage, I want to give a little bit of background information on Paul. And throughout today's sermon, I'm not being... uh, I'll be a little repetitive, but it's on purpose because I want you to get this. But when Alexander the Great conquered the world, he left pockets of Greek culture all throughout the world. And those pockets of Greek culture became very influential. And even though the Roman Empire conquered the Grecian Empire, the Greek culture continued to be a dominant in the culture all throughout the world. It was 
it was all throughout every single society in that day. So the world was under the Roman Empire, but it was dominated by Grecian culture. So now the Grecian culture was very into the arts, okay? And the Hebrew culture was, was very legalistic, all right? The Pharisees were representatives of the Hebrew culture, very strict, very legalistic. They, they tended towards the legal side, whereas the Grecian was more cultural, more interested in the various forms of art and all that good stuff. So as you can imagine, there was real conflict between these two cultures. And at this time, Israel was divided. The Jews were divided into the Hellenists and into the Hebrews, right? And we've talked about that a little bit. We got into that in chapter 6, all right? The Hellenist Jews were those who were coming back to Israel, and they had uh, been all throughout the world, and they weren't considered pure according to the Hebrew Jews. So for a man to effectively reach the Jewish people, he kind of had to have an understanding of both cultures, right? Um, and so you think about this. You think about how God works. God chose Paul as the instrument because he was the perfect candidate. God's sovereign. He ordered every step of Paul, and he was using all the experiences of his life. I want you to stop, and I want you to think about this. And, and it's something I want you to think about all throughout the text today. God has ordered your steps. He knows where you're at. Even those right now who are going through a difficult season, God has ordered your steps. He knows where you're at. And not only that, but God is going to take it and use it for his glory. It's something we don't like to talk about a lot in the church because it's really hard to, it's a hard pill to swallow. I mean, when we're miserable, we want to be miserable. <laughs> I want to think that maybe God has this plan, even in this difficult season. But I want, you to, I, want, I want that to be in your minds as we go through our text today. Paul was born in the city of Tarsus, Tarsus, which is one of the centers for Greek culture. And up until the age of 14, though he was Hebrew of Hebrews, that is, his parents were of the Hebrew culture, very strong Pharisees, Paul's earliest acquaintances, his friends, his playmates, probably would have been all from Hellenistic culture. So he became acquainted with the Hellenistic culture. But his parents, in order to shield... shield shield him from this Hellenistic culture when he was 14, rather than send him to the university there, that would have been in Asia Minor, chose rather to send him to the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. This is where he sat at the feet of Gamaliel, one of the greatest teachers of that day and one of the greatest Pharisees. So Paul became pretty saturated with the Pharisaic culture, but he never did freely get totally free of that, that Grecian culture background that he had as a child. Amazing how God works. Like I said, Paul was the perfect instrument that God needed to go out into the world and to reach those of the Hellenistic culture and those of the Greek culture with the straight truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's Saul. And by the way, like we said, the name Saul is Hebrew. It literally means to be asked for. It's believed that Saul was named after the first king of Israel. We'll talk about that a little later today as well. But you've heard of King Saul, right? So the first king, followed by David, Saul was maybe named after the first king. Then his name, Paul, was the second name that he had. And Paul actually means little or short of stature. And I am just here to say that I'm glad that one of the first incredible generals that God chose was short and small because God uses small people. Somebody say amen. Come on. <laughs> Paul was more of a Gentile name that he adapted when he went to preach among the Gentiles. So here's what I want you to notice first. So we look at verses uh, 1 through 2. Paul actually, as evil as he was, or as evil as this looked like, at least, had good intentions. He was sincere. He was just sincerely wrong. And we're going to look at that. Look with me at verse 1 through 2. 
So it said, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for the letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Do you know that you can be religiously lost? You could be religious yet still lost. Sometimes people get the idea today that as long as you're sincere, as long as you really believe, as long as you are really devoted, that that's enough. But you can be sincerely wrong. You can be sincerely deceived. You can be fervent. You can be zealous and devoted for a wrong cause. It's all about truth. It's not necessarily about fervor, zeal, or excitement. It's about truth. You can be very zealous for the wrong thing. You can have zeal, but, but it's not according to knowledge. And with all this knowledge that Saul, Saul had, he was still wrong. Saul has good intentions. See, you need to remember where he's coming from, and, and, and let's look at this for a moment. Saul is a devout Jew. See, so many times when we, when we read about Saul, and I've, I've heard Saul presented this way, he was this evil, horrible person. I mean, he just stood there while Stephen was stoned, and he liked it. But you got to remember his background. Saul thinks he's very right. Saul thinks he's fighting for God. He's a devout Jew. A matter of fact, if you were to continue looking at the stories that Paul himself tells about his own life in Acts 24 and 26. In Philippians, there's, this, there's a variety of places where Paul begins to describe when he becomes Paul, when he went from Saul to Paul. Saul grew up in Jerusalem. He was well-known in the community. He was one of the ones who wanted to abide by the law as much as he could. He was devoted to following the law. He was a strict adherer to the law. And it was not so much that he just did it by himself. He was a follower of Gamaliel, like we said earlier, who was one of the, the greatest leaders in the synagogue. In fact, if you go back to Acts chapter not, or 5, we see that Gamaliel was one of the guys in the city. He was the guy who, that said, well, listen, fellas, wait a minute. I know we're not really big fans of uh, this Jesus of Nazareth and the things that his disciples are doing. We, we find pretty offensive. But he also said this, look at, look at if this is of God, you're not going to be able to stop it. And he says, and if this is of man, it's going to fade away. Just leave it alone. So that's Paul's teacher. That's Gamaliel. And Saul was Gamaliel's disciple. Saul was a Pharisee, which meant he was a strict adherer to the law. Saul was passionate, zealously passionate about following the law. And the difference, I want you to know, the difference between someone who's passionate and someone who's zealous is that a passionate person is going to tell you how passionate they are. A zealous person is going to force you to be as passionate as they are, <laughs> right? Saul was zealous for the law. He was passionate about it. He wanted not only himself to be a good Jewish man, following and adhering to the strict regulations of the law. He wanted everybody, everyone, to be a strict adherer of the law because it was the right thing to do, according to Saul. All right? And as a matter of fact, the thing that got Saul all riled up and why he was casting out these people and wanted to kill them and murder them, it's because of what the law said. In fact, Leviticus 24, 16 reads this. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord must be put to death. In other words, as far as Saul was concerned, as far as the law was concerned, if you claimed to be a follower of Jesus and not a follower of Jehovah, Yahweh, you were blaspheming which was a capital crime, which meant if you were a Jew and you renounced your Judaism to be a man of the way or a woman of the way, Saul says, Leviticus tells me, I gotta kill you. You gotta die. And this is why we see him standing by while Stephen's being killed. Not, not any remorse, not any sadness, but, but feeling justified because he's doing the right thing. 
He's trying to zealously, passionately pursue what he believes is the right thing. So he, he has good intentions. He saw the followers of Jesus blaspheming, according to him, and he brought the full force of the law against them. All right? And as a result, the Jews in Jerusalem began to flee. They began to run. They began to scatter. They began to go all over the place. And we see in chapters 7 and 8, we see, we see the believers begin to find themselves. Philip, remember the story of Philip? He's now teaching in Samaria, and as he goes along the way, he's telling more and more and more people in Judea and Samaria about Jesus. We find him going to talk, talking to the Ethiopian eunuch, remember? We begin to see the gospels being spread because of the work that Saul is doing. Saul is chasing these people. He's trying to bring them to justice by either murdering them or putting them in prison. And God is doing this incredible work. Because you remember Acts 1.8 says, You will be my disciples in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria. And I want you to know something. Because we're not that different from the disciples in those days. God gave these promises, and these promises seemed outlandish. These promises seemed like they were impossible. And yet God, when he makes a promise, is going to fulfill the promise. And we have a book full of his promises. And I want you to know, no matter what's going on in the world, no matter what situation or circumstance you face, I want you to know that when God says something's going to happen, it's going to happen. We can stand on that, just like the disciples did. So here God's making good on his promise. He's going to get the gospel out there, right? Okay, and as Saul, he's the ringleader in Jerusalem. He's got good intentions. I want you to see this. The man has good intentions. He really does. He's not willing to let blasphemers continue to blaspheme God. He, he goes to Caiaphas and says, Caiaphas, give me a warrant. Give me some letters. I'm going to Damascus. There are a lot of people who have fled from here to there, and there are a lot of our brothers, fellow Jews in Damascus, who need to understand the truth. So give me what I need. Give me, give me the people I need, and I'm going. Caiaphas gave him what he wanted, and he went. He went to Damascus. He pursued after them to bring them back to Jerusalem for trial. And if he had anything to do with it, probably to kill them. Because they had blasphemed God and he had good intentions. Okay? The reason I can say Saul had good intentions is because, again, he's passionate about what he's doing in a way that's consistent with the way he views the world. The guy is sincere, but he's sincerely wrong. He hasn't heard the gospel in a way that he has responded to it yet. And here's what I think is helpful for us to understand, okay? If you're taking notes, write this down. What some mean for evil against you, God means for good. Look, this is a theme all throughout the Bible, and yet this is, this is what so many believers struggle with because our humanity wants to not trust God when things don't go our way. When we're experiencing difficult times, the first person we want to cast shame on or, or throw some shade their way is God. How could God allow this, right? It's just it's our human nature to respond that way. Do you have villains pursuing after you? Because remember, what some mean for evil, God means for good. And, and I've even seen this in the church. I hate to say this. But I've, I've seen this in the church. And because of my profession, I'm a pastor. I've been a minister uh, all my life. But you guys, you probably have villains in your, in your world too. And in your jobs, your careers, you've got people that probably seem like villains and they're coming after you. I see this in the church a lot. In fact, I just got asked not too long ago to be a part of a coaching uh, cohort, which I thought was really interesting. I'm not sure <laughs> I'm not sure I'd be a great candidate to be coaching people, but I'll give it a go. It should be fun, right? One of the things though that I'm seeing more and more in this small cohort is that sometimes pastors have villains in the church. Here here and I don't, by the way. I love this church. 
But what I, what I see sometimes, and it breaks my heart, is these pastors who have said yes to the call. And again, they, when something bad happens, they think maybe they missed uh, hearing from God. No, 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 we gotta trust God. You might have a villain in your church, you might have somebody coming after you, you might have somebody making all kinds of problems, but you have to remember, just like, just like we're learning right here, that when, when there's issues in our life or when you have villains coming after you, remember God has a purpose, right? But what breaks my heart is we don't even need the world to come into our church and, and to cause problems because we have enough people in our church who will do that. Isn't that sad, though? We'll get into that in a little bit. Here's what I want you to know, though. Don't allow the events of your life, the problems of your life, the physicalities of your life, the limitations of your life, or the whatevers of your life, don't allow those things to determine your view of God's future for your life. Okay? Go back to God's word. His promises are good. You could take it to the bank. Don't allow the souls of your world to distract you from what God has in store for you. Look, if you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you are a true follower of him, God has a plan and a purpose for your life. He is going to accomplish his will through you, and you can take that to the bank. It doesn't matter what you've been through. It doesn't matter what you're going through. God's going to take that. He's going to use it for his good to bring him glory. Amen? So you got two choices. You could either just trust him, and yield to him. We just sang the song, I Surrender All, one of my favorite all-time hymns. In fact, that was the hymn where I said yes to go serve God in different parts of the world that were really, really difficult. I'm excited he brought me to Cincinnati. <laughs> God is good. <laughs> Don't allow the souls of your world to distract you from what God has in store for you. Then we come into verse 3 through 7. We see Paul has this divine interruption, okay? So remember, Paul had good intentions, and now Paul was going to have a divine interruption. Look with me at verse 3. It says, you will be, oh, that's Acts 1.8. That's a good one too. Remember, God's accomplishing this throughout this entire text. That's all right. Look with me at verse 3. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. Verse 4, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I want you to see something here. This is really important. Don't miss this. I want you to notice how Jesus takes persecution against his church. Do you see what Jesus says? Why are you persecuting me? Me. Jesus does not see the church as an it. He doesn't see the church as a building. He sees the church as him. Me, he says. Why are you persecuting me? It's Christ who's being persecuted. We see in the Gospels where he says several times, if you do this to them, you've done it to me. Man, he has so united himself to his church that they're one and of the same. And that's going to throw Paul off. He's going to say in a minute, uh, wait, who are you? I've never persecuted someone as bright as you. But, but see, there's no separation between him and them. And here's what I want to say to you. There's no separation between love for Jesus and commitment to his church. Jesus calls the church his bride. And you can't love Jesus and hate his bride. Right? Any more than you could tell me, hey, Justin, I love you. We want to invite you over to the house. We just love you so much. But that stinking wife of yours, oh, my word, we just can't stand her. Now, usually it's the opposite, just so you know. And I have to remind Liz. <laughs> you couldn't come to me and say, Justin, you're so amazing. We just love you. You're so pleasant to be around. But that wife, leave her at home. That never happens, by the way. Never. You can't do that, right? 
Because I need a, and, I, and I, I feel like I need to stop and make a point of this because I, I hear from so many people who say they love Jesus and they're followers of Jesus, but they don't need the church. I'm telling you, there is no question at all, based on the Bible, that you should be very involved in a local church. You need to join. You need to get involved in ministry. You need to be a contributing member, right? And here's the truth. We've become such a consumer culture, and this mentality has crept into our church culture, that many don't want to even hear this message. Many are going to get upset with me when I say this. They get upset when the preacher tells them this. But the thing is, it's permeated all throughout the New Testament. We don't like that because we prefer to have church our way. But the truth is that we're not Burger King. Let's say it again. The church is not Burger King. We don't get to have it our way. All right? I hear all the time, I can't do church. Church people are messed up. I can't do, I don't want to be associated with a bunch of hypocrites. I've been hurt by people. I get that some might feel that way sometimes. Sometimes I feel that way, just so you know. Because the church is messy. It's full of people and people are messy. I've been hurt by church members. I've probably hurt church members. We're messy, okay? We're human. We do that. But if I'm honest with you, sometimes the church even embarrasses me. I've told you the story when I worked for TGI Fridays when I was at Bible college. I remember I I requested Sundays off, but uh, my very first week there, he said, we just need you to work this Sunday. We promise we're gonna give you every Sunday off. So I showed up and we would have a team huddle before every Sunday. a full day of work, and I remember he started off with, this is Sunday, this is the worst day for restaurants because we've got to deal with church people. And I'll never forget that. I, I will never forget it. And you know what? He was right. Church people were the worst. Lousy tippers, mean, mean-spirited. They loved to let us have it if we made mistakes. They were nasty. It was not a fun day. I was very happy to take Sundays off after that. Sometimes the church embarrasses me. And, and Here's the truth. If, this is what you need to understand. If, if God identifies with embarrassing, broken things like me, like you, and the church, why would anybody think that they're too good to identify with the church? I love Pastor J.D. Greer, and he says this concerning this. He says, the first sign of God at work in you is you are disgusted with the church. It's the first sign. Hold on, we got two more signs. Stick with me. Second, second sign or the second level is you become disgusted with yourself. Because the more you're around, the more you're around uh, broken people and the more you're in God's presence, the more you realize how broken you are. Okay, but the third level is this. So God, you're disgusted with the church. God's at work in you. You're disgusted with yourself. The third level is you re-enter the church, not as a Pharisee to condemn, but a fellow beggar in desperate need of grace. Is that where you're at? That's where I'm at. You gotta have a right perspective. You gotta understand exactly who you are before the God Almighty, right? Now, verse five says this. It says, and he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Verse six, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. So Saul says, whoa, whoa, who are you? I'm Jesus. I'm the living Christ. I'm the one you're persecuting. I'm I'm not persecuting you. I'm trying to track down these people, Paul's saying. No, 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 no. They are people of the way. I am the way. 
I am the truth and I am the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Jesus is the way. When we are followers of the way, when persecution happens, they are persecuting Jesus. We're his body. The question is, are you a part of it? Are you a part of that body? Later, when Paul recounts this moment in Acts chapter 26, he reports something else that Jesus said here in between those two phrases. And here's how he said it. So if, if you've got the Bible, I would have read it for you. But Acts chapter 26, verse 14, it says, And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, I thought this was a bad word when I was a little kid. <laughs> goads. Now, what does that mean? The goads were those instruments that they put on the front of the plow so that if the ox began to kick, it would kick the goads and it would, be, it would determine the kicking wasn't really a smart thing to do. It wasn't so wise. And of course, it helps protect the guy who's guiding the plow. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. So what had been doing this to Saul? Well, I would think the death of Stephen. I would think unanswered questions about Jesus. The way that Christians died, it didn't make any sense. Those goads were bothering Paul. They were wounding him, so he was kicking against them. And this was getting more and more violent, right? Verse 7 says, The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Now, this is important because, you see, that's what happens sometimes in conversion. People around you encounter the same things, but they can't hear the voice of God in it. They'll read the same books. They'll hear the same preacher preach the same sermon. They'll encounter the same questions, but it just sounds like noise to them. But in these things, you hear the voice of God. And I I can't be exactly sure at what point in the story Saul went from being unsaved to to saved, from a non-believer to a believer, but I tend to believe that at this point, he's already believed in Jesus Christ. And, And that is why he actually calls him Lord. Now, I love how C.S. Lewis talks about this episode, this conversion that took place. He says that God was the divine chess player who was maneuvering the chessboard and backing Saul of Tarsus into a corner until finally Jesus said, checkmate. I just love it. I love it. It's an awesome description. Here Jesus is saying, checkmate. You're after me. You're trying to arrest my people. I just arrested you. Mic drop. (laughs) He sees a vision. He hears a voice. He comes under conviction. And then I believe there's conversion. And that's why he did what Jesus told him to do. He obeyed Jesus. He followed Jesus. Here's what I want you to understand today. Jesus pursues us before we pursue him. Some of you have grown up uh, in traditions and they, they believe the Bible and they love Jesus, but the way that they tell you that you are saved is that you've got to look for God. You've got to seek God. You've got to find God. Here's my question. Is that Saul's story today? <laughs> is he going to stand up on Testimony Sunday and say, I, I went after Jesus. I pursued him. I was praying to him. I was looking for him. I went on this spiritual quest and I encountered Jesus with an open heart. Is that Saul's story, absolutely not. In fact, Jesus would say this, I was on a quest to find Saul of Tarsus. I was the one with the open heart. I was the one who was on the mission to find and to have relationship with Saul. He wasn't looking for me. I was looking for him. He wasn't pursuing me. I was pursuing him. He didn't even want to hear from me, but I wanted to talk to him. 
Now, I believe this is for someone today, so listen carefully. Before you ever pursue Jesus, Jesus pursues you. Before you ever desire Jesus, Jesus desires you. Before you ever seek Jesus, Jesus seeks you. And I'm telling you, there are some people here, it's not by accident that you're here. You're watching on, uh, online. It's not by accident that you're watching online. You have never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ. And I'm telling you, it is not an accident that you are here. Jesus is pursuing you and chasing you. He wants to know you. He wants to talk with you. He wants to have a relationship with you. He wants you to experience freedom. Some of you have even grown up your whole life in the church and you still don't know what I'm talking about. Jesus is pursuing you, chasing you, going after you. He wants to walk with you. He wants to talk with you. He wants you to know him. And I'm so happy that this story is in the Bible. I'm happy because it shows not only how awful Saul was, but it shows how wonderful Jesus is. Amen? Look at at verse 8. It says, Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand, brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Listen, an encounter with the living Christ results in changed identity. Charles Spurgeon, writing about Saul's Damascus Road experience, put it this way. He said, So the proud persecutor who was going to Damascus as a conqueror to crush the saints of God was himself led into the city as a captive to be forever afterward the slave of Jesus Christ. Jesus can make a follower out of anyone. Jesus can make a follower out of anyone. He can take someone and completely change their life. And can I just talk to the moms and dads in our church today and those who are watching who have a wayward child? I want you to be encouraged today. God can save anyone. You know, the hardest part about being a pastor is, is walking on the, the journey. It's great when, when everybody that you're counseling or everybody that you're ministering to is on the mountaintop. That is awesome, right? <laughs> you just, but the truth is, as a pastor, I walk through all the seasons with you. And so I'm on the mountaintop with you guys when you're on the mountaintop and you're experiencing all this incredibleness. And then I'm in the valley when you're, when you're in the valley. And I'll, I'll be honest, some of the most heartbreaking sessions that I have are, are days as a pastor because I'm a, I'm a dad. Liz and I have three beautiful kids. And the hardest thing for me is, is that some of you are going through such difficult pain when it comes to your child who has walked away from the Lord or who has never accepted the Lord. And, and the pain is so evident because I don't think there can be anything more painful than a child that is not following Jesus. And I want to encourage you today. I want to encourage you from the Bible. Jesus can save anybody. Jesus can encounter anybody. He can save anybody. So don't lose hope. Don't lose faith. Keep praying. And uh, God can do incredible things. Now, think about this. Saul, the mighty, now kneeling before God. Saul, the one who thought he saw so clearly, now being led by the hand because he's blind. Saul, the one who seized others, now seized himself by the Lord Jesus Christ. Saul, the hammer who broke others, now himself broken on the anvil of Jesus Christ. Saul would soon change his name to Paul. We talked about it a little bit, but... I told you, Paul means small. 
So Saul was this strong Jewish name, the name of the first mighty king of Israel. Saul the mighty has become Paul the small. And here's what I I find so interesting is the sovereign plan of God, the sovereignty of God in this story, the work of the villain, the work of Paul, Paul as the villain, that, that work is done. The villain's work, it's been accomplished. Saul, your zealous, passionate activity has caused the church to disperse. It's no longer just in Jerusalem. It's now in Judea. It's in Samaria. And and now I've got this other plan for you. See, the, the work of the villain is done. The sovereign work of God through the villain of Saul, it's been completed. It's now time for a new identity. The gospel left Jerusalem. It's begun to spread, and it's time for Saul to begin a new life to begin a new way of thinking and to engage this world differently. It's through the sovereign work of God that Saul has become the servant who will play a key role in the third phase of Acts chapter 1-8. Judea, Samaria, and all the world. To the uttermost parts of the earth, Saul becomes the apostle to the Gentiles. And as we continue reading, as we continue going through the book of Acts, Saul's gonna become a key character The sovereignty of God has caused the villain to become his servant. (laughs) Saul, well, Paul, actually, in, in Philippians 3, he summarizes his salvation experience. He says, but everything that was gained to me so here's the, the fact that he, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees, the fact that he was from the tribe of Benjamin and Judah, all of that, everything that was gained to me, he says, I have considered it a loss because of Christ. More than that, I've considered everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God, because and based on faith. That's his salvation story. This is the moment where Saul's life completely changes. He encountered the living Christ, and as a result, he's got a new identity. He's got a new way of thinking. He has a new, a new view of the world. He's got a new mission. He has a new passion and a new thing to be zealous over. So my question today for you is, are you a villain? Because there's only two things we can be, either a servant of Jesus Christ or a villain. My question is, are you a villain? Are you, are you in working rebellion against the work of Jesus, our King? Have you had a divine encounter? Because if you have, you have a new identity. Have you responded to that? Will you be transformed into the image of his son through the amazing work of the gospel? Will you live like that? Like Paul. Paul says, I've considered all worthless, like dung, like a dung pile, because of what Jesus has done for him. Is that you? Because there's two questions now that I want to focus on as we're getting ready to close. Two questions that Saul of Tarsus asked. uh, And I believe every single one of us here needs to ask these two questions ourselves. Okay, number one is, who are you, Lord? That's the first question. Who are you, Lord? Who is Jesus to you? And the second question is, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? That's the second question. Some of you have been around church your entire life, your whole life you've been around God, uh, but you have never settled that question. Who is Jesus Christ? You've heard things, you've listened to things, but you have never wrestled with it or struggled with it. Who is Jesus Christ to you? 
Answer that question. And once you've answered that question, you think about, you think, he's Lord. He's, he's God, and you've surrendered to him, and you're making him the king of your life, and you're going to surrender your entire life to him, and you resign to that identity. Then you need to ask this, Lord, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? Because I'm telling you, there is nothing more exciting than living your life getting that question answered. What do you want me to do? You wake up tomorrow, you ask that question. God, what is it that you want me to do? What do you want me to do? Where, where, where is it that your life is going to be become a living sacrifice? Now, I've told you this over and over and over. I was so excited to come to this church. Liz and I said yes to being missionaries. When we met at Bible college, we talked. We thought I would die in India, thought I was going to be buried in India. We were going to go serve the most unreached parts of this world. And we were ready to do that. And then God, in his sovereignty, he has a way. We, we got kicked out of India. I think we were there for six, six whole months. <laughs> Didn't go as planned. Six months, I'm in India. What am I going to do? God redirects our steps because God is behind everything in our life, remember? So I had spent 10 years. I went to, to India as a young 19-year-old, and I, I said yes to missions. And from, from the time I was 19 all the way till the time we left, I was 29 years old when we arrived in India, I had done nothing but studied all about that culture. Got a, got a degree in Bible college with an emphasis on Islamic studies, and, and I, I, man, I, w- I prepared my all of those 10 years to go to India, six months, and I'm being kicked out of the country. Six months. Tell you the most depressing flight I've ever been on, because we couldn't even go back and get our stuff, was sitting on that airplane. And I remember, I didn't want to cry in front of Liz, but I just felt defeated. 10 years of preparing to do this. get the tones. I'd be, ma, 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 ma. I can't hear it. It's all ma to me, you know. Here I am in Thailand not knowing what to do. I cannot even minister to Thais effectively because I do not speak their language. And then the international church there has a crisis. Overnight, they double in size. Pakistani refugees coming into the country, flooding into the country. All these Thai pastors not knowing what to do. Even the international pastors not knowing what to do. And when you know, all of a sudden, I'm seeing God's divine plan. 10 years, I'm studying how to reach Muslim people. 
thought I was going to be in India, but God had a different plan. He was going to take me to Thailand where I was going to minister to all kinds of Pakistani refugees. And for 10 years, that's what Liz and I did. 10 years. God has a way. He has this plan. And, and, and it's funny because sometimes when you say yes to Jesus, when you say yes to the call, you have to just remember that God is going to direct each of your steps. And after 10 years, God directed our steps back to Cincinnati, Ohio, of all places. Cincinnati, Ohio. And, and yeah, we're happy. We love it. And I've said from the very beginning that the greatest ministry is not going to be in here on a Sunday morning. The greatest ministry is going to be when people realize the plan that God has for their life, that they are not just called to work in the post office or to be a dentist or to be a lawyer or to be a doctor, but that God has a plan and a call on their life to be a soul-winning, disciple-making follower of Jesus Christ. When you understand that, you go into your work field knowing that God has just sent you into your mission field. And when people get that, then the church becomes what the church was meant to be. Not a building, not an institution, but a movement, right? And I'm telling you what, Liz and I did not come off the mission field because we wanted to do church the same old way that churches have been doing church for years. We came because we believe very much that God has this incredible plan for this next season. He has had his blessing on this church since it started 60 years ago when he called Pastor Hugh Rosenberg to to start this. He put a vision on his heart and that plan is still the same. God wants to touch and reach the world and God's not done here at New Heights Church. It's just a new season and it's exciting because Liz and I believe that God is moving and working in the lives of people and you are a part of this story. You're a part of the plan and I want you to ask yourself that question today. I want you to do that. God, what is it you want me to do? I don't think that God's going to tell some of you, you need to quit your job, jump on a plane and move to India or Africa. I think God's just going to say, I want you to open your eyes and I want you to see the mission field because I want to put the Holy Spirit in you. And I want the Holy Spirit to work through you in the lives of those that are around you because you are connected to people who do not know me or my grace or my mercy. And I want to use you. You're a part of the plan that's going to be our next season and that's going to bring people in. So I want you to ask that that question today as we close, but I want you to bow your heads and I want to pray. Will you do that? Father God, thank you. Thank you so much that we have the book of Acts. So much of the Bible has so much instruction and it's so helpful for us in our everyday life. Here in Acts, we get this example of what it looks like. We see what it looks like when the, the gospel of Jesus Christ accompanied by the power of the Holy Spirit, invades, transforms, and redeems somebody like Saul of Tarsus into Paul the Apostle. And Lord, I thank you for all the grace that you give to sinners, like Saul, like me, like us. I thank you for your willingness, Jesus, to pursue us, to forgive us, and to love us. And I thank you so much that you didn't treat us, you didn't treat Saul the way he was treating the church. And I thank you so much that treat us the way we deserve to be treated. Instead, in love, you put yourself in our place and you endure what should we should endure so that you can love us, forgive us, change us, seek us, and save us. And it's incredible. It doesn't make any sense at all. It's so good. It's truly amazing what you do through the gospel. And I pray for those who may not know the Lord Jesus that they would walk away today believing that he is the way. It's all it takes. There's not 
There's not something you have to do in the sense of coming up to the altar or of having a, a Christian pray over you. All you have to do is surrender to him and say, Jesus, you're the way. I put my faith and trust in you. I surrender my life to you. So I pray that if there's anybody here today who has not done that, that they would do that today. Their life would be forever changed and they would embrace a new identity today. And I pray for those of us who are Christians, who are followers of Jesus. God, I thank you for this wonderful opportunity that we have today through the example of Paul's life, through his testimony, to take all that we are, all that we have, all that we do and give it to you and to see it redeemed so that it's used for something good. We thank you for that. We thank you for his example in Jesus' name.